It's a long walk up here. No, but that's good. I'm so encouraged uh, just even in the time this morning we had to meet a number of you and see you again. It's such an encouragement for us to see what God has been doing here uh, since our time here. And um, uh, God has taken us a few places since, since we were here. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of an update. So um, just so you know, me and my wife, Amy, I'm Kevin, and my wife, Amy, and we have eight children. You'll see them in the third row there. Um, Caden, Ivy, Chase, Chandler, Sage, Cypress, and Bryn, and then Autumn. She's our our youngest. She was with us last year when we visited. Um, But since we were here last year, we have relocated from Indiana, where where I was pastoring, um, along with Tim Bushong at Syracuse Baptist Church. We were sent now. They didn't like us there, so they sent us to Colorado to uh, see a church planted there. Uh, there's, I'm going to give you the brief, brief story of that. So, um, you know, as we initially moved to the U.S., our thoughts were on Utah, so western, western states of the, of, of the United States, looking to see if the Lord would have us serve alongside some friends that were church planting there. And so that kind of directed our attention that direction. But then as we landed in Indiana, we were, we were smitten by the the plague of COVID and man's response to it more. Um, thankfully, we found a wonderful church that we plugged into there, and I came alongside to serve, and we saw that church blossom and grow um, greatly just in those three years that we were there. And so when we first arrived, we were the only, we were one of two families with kids. When we left, I, I don't even know how many families with kids. There were so many. It was just wonderful to see what God did. Um, but God brought, brought our attention to this spring to an opportunity in Colorado where there was no gospel light. There's no church in the immediate community. And someone, actually a friend of mine from Winnipeg, you may know Aaron Boswell, was the one that brought it to my attention. He said, there's this church that is needing... There's this church building. It's been vacant for seven years, but he said the pastors in Colorado have been praying for this location. There's been possibilities on the horizon numerous times, but just nothing established. So we went out there this summer, checked out the opportunity, and long story short, we've established ourselves there. So now we've been there just about a month. And so we're, if you see any pictures, don't think, oh, that looks like it's a well-established congregation. No, it's brand new. Anybody that's coming is coming for the first time in seven years. Um, there's a real craving for good, solid gospel preaching, and that's what we found in just the first couple weeks that we've been there. So we're very encouraged. Um, we're, it's very ground level, so it's, everything's brand new. So there's the novelty factor piece. But um, there's also a true hunger and craving for the gospel. So we're just really excited for what God is going to do there. And we're loving and looking forward to uh, building in more partnerships with other churches that want to come alongside us. So we, we appreciate your prayers and support in that way. I want to look this morning at uh, a theme that weaves its way through Scripture um, and it's not exactly a Christmas theme. You could have preached this topic any time of the year. Um, but you know, if you've, if you've ever maybe um, gotten a, a really nice sweater, nice weave in that sweater, it's knitted, 
you know that fatal flaw that you make when you pick at a loose thread in that sweater. Um, let me just advise you, if you've never done it, don't pull on the thread. Just go see grandma. You know, um, It's not worth trying to fix it yourself. You will inevitably end up with a hole in that sweater. And uh, so, yeah, don't pull on the thread. That's, but, but I want to pull on a thread of scripture today because I want to show you, um, and this is not um, nothing new probably for you today, but I want to just retrace a biblical theme through the Bible and see how the characters and the themes and the stories interweave to paint a very marvelous picture of God's plan for the ages. Um, but of course, if we were to remove this thread and say, all right, we've studied that one, now we don't need it anymore. No, you'd leave a gaping hole in the thread of God's word. Um, and so you don't want to do that. You, you want to study the Bible in its parts, but not unrelated to the rest of Scripture. Um, you know, uh, any student of Scripture, and I think I'm looking at many of them, you're going to find that as you study Scripture, you're going to see all these amazing connections between the Old and New Testaments, and even the most seasoned theologian, the most seasoned uh, lover of God's Word is constantly discovering things he didn't see before, and maybe there will be some things like that for you today. So, uh, one of our favorite albums, in addition to the the song we just sang now, Prepare Him Room. I love the album in which that is, uh, was first recorded. Um, another album we love is Andrew Peterson's um, it's, it's The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Um, and in that album, he weaves together many of these scenes and the plan of God as depicted through the ages in the scripture. So this morning, I want to look at that theme of the Lamb of God throughout the Scripture. So I want to turn your attention to uh, Genesis chapter 4 will be our first passage. Genesis chapter 4. I'd invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bible. And as we do that, I will open in prayer and we'll begin our reading. We come to you, our gracious God and Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that he manifested, the love of God that was shown when the Father sent the Son to come into the world to save sinners. We thank you for the glorious themes of your word, and we pray that even now as we we pull on this one thread of scripture that our minds would be illuminated and we would be caused to worship the God of heaven. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Genesis chapter 4, and, and here is recounted, recorded for us, the account of Cain and Abel, uh, each presenting an offering to God. If you look at chapter 4, and I'm just going to st- jump in right at verse 2, again, Eve bore his, that is Cain's brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? In this text, we have Abel, a 
a keeper of sheep. He's a shepherd. And Cain, his brother, he's a caretaker of vegetables and the like. So he's a gardener. Well, here we have in Scripture the very first indication or reference to lambs, but also to sacrifice, the sacrifice of a lamb. And I think it's worth noting uh, that, that this is a few thousand years before Moses, okay, um, in which sacrifices became more of a normality, at least something that God called his people to do. Prior to this, we have no clear instruction from God that says, you need to be sacrificing offerings for your sin. And yet, we've already seen by this point in Scripture that there's a need for sacrifice. There's a need for offerings to be made to God. Uh, Now, Abel's offering is not accepted, or sorry, is accepted, whereas Cain's is rejected by God. And you might speculate, why would this be? Why would, was God partial towards, towards Abel, whereas he just didn't like Cain very much, so he didn't receive his offering? We're not explicitly told the reason why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. But what you find through Scripture is this principle that weaves its way through, and it was in our text that we looked at in Hebrews this morning that Josh read, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so Abel shed, he took a lamb, and he sacrificed a lamb. Whereas Cain, in bringing produce from the garden, um, was bringing something that had no life in it, in the sense of nephesh life, something that was living and breathing, something that had blood. And so even while this is the first instance that we have in the New Testament of a specific reference to a shed blood of a lamb, yet I think it's worth noticing that this is something that has shown up before, even without being explicitly said. If you look at the fall, where we have Adam and Eve having disobeyed God, there a skin, skin of an animal is taken to clothe them. And so clearly, to take the skin of an animal you have to shed it, the blood of that animal. So there has to be the death of an animal in order for Adam and Eve to be covered. And so if we begin our look at this theme of Christ the Lamb here, I think one thing that you see is that is the reason for the Lamb, the necessity for the Lamb throughout Scripture is this, that there's this idea that a substitute is needed. A substitute is necessary to stand in the place of the sinner whether that be Adam and Eve, or now Cain and Abel. A substitute is necessary. Someone or something that will absorb the wrath of God that is rightfully due against sinners. Someone to take the place of the sinner, to die and bear the weight of our sin. And so we see here in this story this idea of the necessity of a sacrifice, the necessity of a lamb. If you move forward in scripture, pull on this thread a little more, you come to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And many of these are familiar, very familiar texts for us. Abraham was selected by God to be the father of a innumerable number, a company of a great nation, to which Abraham would be the father of this great nation. But through that nation and through that lineage, 
the Messiah, the one that was promised to Adam back in the garden after he fell, God promised he would bring that Messiah in through Abraham's line. And so God uh, chose out of all the peoples in the world one man through whom to bring in and his family to bring in the Messiah. So God was very um, intent on protecting the lineage of Abraham, of protecting that nation in order that, indeed, the Messiah would come in through that line. It would need to be a redeemer who would restore mankind to fellowship with God. And so as we look at Scripture again, we see to Adam and Eve had been promised that there would be one that would come who would do battle with that old serpent who had deceived them in the garden. He'd do battle with the devil. He would crush the serpent's head. And in so doing, he would be bruised in the process. And so that Savior that was promised to Adam is now being promised also to Abraham. But Abraham has the glorious news of hearing, through, through your seed will come one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. So as we're reading the story of Abraham, we're waiting for God to make good on his promise. And here's Abraham and, and Sarah waiting as well. In fact, um, they wait until Abraham is 100 years old for God to fulfill the promise. Now, we know, if you're familiar with the scripture, Abraham and Sarah try to connive and come up with a way by um, Abraham um, getting his servant pregnant. But that was not the child of promise. God waited until Sarah was 90 years old to bring in the final, the miracle of a son. And she gives birth to Isaac, the one through whom the messianic line would come, the Messiah himself. As you're looking at your scripture, you're welcome to turn to Genesis 22. Because it's here now that we get a glimpse of the night in which God said, okay, you know that son that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for, the son of your love, the son of your true affection, the same one, Isaac, take him, that child of promise, the one through whom the Messiah will be born, take him and offer him to the Lord as a sacrifice. And so in Genesis 22, verse 2, God says this, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we read that Abraham rises quickly. He's obedient to the, to the divine command. He rises early. He saddles his donkey. He takes two servants with him. And he, along with them and Isaac, head up to Mount Moriah. If you look down at verse 7, we read, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? For a burnt offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now at this point in the story, Isaac seems completely oblivious of the, of the role that he's expected to play here in this story, in this sacrifice. He's rightly identified the, the pieces necessary for sacrifice. Isaac is familiar with the concept of sacrifice and substitution. 
And he's aware that there's an, a missing element in this sacrifice. We've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows that to be a true sacrifice is going to require the shedding of blood. So where is the lamb? So Abraham then replies these words, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, I, as a reader of scripture and having heard it many times, I can't help when I hear those words, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I can't help as a reader of scripture to be drawn right away to an ultimate fulfillment at Calvary and to the Lamb of God. And I think that's intentional in Scripture, that we're supposed to be thinking not just about the immediate crisis, but thinking forward to its long-term actual, uh, what it points to, what it, what it is in type, what it's looking forward to, that God will indeed provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. There's more, there's more reasons to think that than just the mere language that might point a reader of Scripture and say, hmm, that sounds like, that reminds me of Calvary. That reminds me that Jesus also was going to be a lamb. There's some other pieces that make me think this was very intentional. Because, as we know, 2,000 years later, another son would have a wooden cross, he would have wood as well, uh, placed on his back, and he also would walk up a hill. It was then called Calvary, or Golgotha, outside, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And if you start doing some research, you find that this is essentially the same location, if anything, a few hundred yards away from the very spot where King Solomon built the first Jewish temple. And if you do some research and read, for instance, 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's 2 Chronicles 3.1. So the temple is built on Mount Moriah, which was the same mountain where Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice him. There's a clear connection here. So according to this passage, Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah. Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah and, and the same mountain where Abraham sacrificed his son is that same mountain. So Mount Moriah, the temple of Solomon, and the place of Isaac's sacrifice, and Golgotha, they're essentially all in the same area, the same location. They all marked the place where God bound himself to fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And so at Golgotha, at Calvary, a lamb would be sacrificed, who would not only be provided by God, but would be God himself in flesh, bringing uh, fresh clarity or fresh understanding, at least, to the meaning of God's words when he says God, or Abraham's words when he says God will provide himself a lamb. So for, for Isaac on that particular day, a lamb was provided. Because at the moment when Abraham 
was about to slay his son. He was interrupted by the angel of the Lord, and then turning, he heard and saw there was a ram caught in the thickets nearby. So God's provision for Isaac um, could be looked upon so that so that when Isaac looked at that ram now on the altar, he could say, a ram instead of me. And in fact, Abraham called that place Yahweh Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. And so when the vital moment came and Abraham was about to kill his son, God made provision. God's provision was there. But as we look at the cross, we look at the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, there was no substitute, right? God the Father actually went through with what Abraham only contemplated, the giving, the sacrificing of his son, his only son, the one he loved. But for the sake of sinners, Isaac was spared, but God, we are told in Romans 8, did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so here we see not just that the lamb was needed, but here we have the lamb prophesied in this account in Genesis 22. Now, if we move along tracing this thread, I come in my, my mind to Exodus chapter 12, where we see the, t- the lamb typified. We're looking at Christ the lamb. And so if we pull on this thread, we see here Exodus 12, where in, in Israel is uh, instructed how to select and properly prepare a substitutionary lamb for each household. Now, the backdrop to this text, to this event, is that the people of Israel, children of Abraham, through Isaac's son Jacob, they have been taken into slavery in Egypt. And so God then raises up a rescuer, uh, Moses, a prophet, through whom he's going to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage. And despite a series of nine devastating plagues, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, remains stubborn, and the children of Israel continue on as slaves. But God has this one final plague that he is about to unleash on the land. And this plague is this, that the firstborn in every family would die unless they followed these orders very carefully. Every single household in Israel is supposed to select a lamb. Not just any lamb. Not just that lame one out back. No, this lamb had to be, Scripture says, without blemish, without spot. It could not have any defects visible whatsoever. It had to be a one-year-old, perfect male lamb. Well, on the tenth day of the month of Abib, that was the day that God appointed That was lamb selection day. That was the day on the calendar where you go pick your lamb. It was the day when the the paschal lambs were chosen for Passover. Something significant here is we trace this theme of the lamb of God. If you look at um, general agreement is that that was the very date, the 10th day of Abib, when Jesus rode through Jerusalem many years later on a donkey. And it it was as... You know, all these lambs would have been being selected that day. It was almost a visual for, for us to say, this is God's chosen lamb, right? On lamb selection day, God is announcing, this is my lamb. Now, if you think about the guidelines for the paschal lamb, 
They're very clear, very specific. It had to be chosen for Passover. As I've said, it had to have no defects, no scrapes, no scratches, no, no spots of any kind. So it had to be perfectly white. Um, it had to be a pure white lamb. So when we come to the New Testament, we see uh, that the New Testament authors are fully aware of this connection. Peter helps link this thread to Christ, the lamb, when he says in 1 Peter 1.18, that uh, we were redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter wants us to see that that connection, that thread is really there. We're not just seeing things. We're not just imagining things. Christ, the lamb, uh, was also scrutinized for blemishes. Uh, During the public ministry of Christ, uh, he was watched very closely. As you read through the scriptures, he's especially uh, scrutinized by his enemies. Uh, The Pharisees, that group of religious zealots, are especially keen on pointing out anything that they think might not be 100% perfect in him. And yet, even they eventually had to admit he is without fault. Pilate, the man who is... is, uh, charged with carrying out the trial of Christ at the crucifixion and ordering his crucifixion, said this about Jesus. He says, I find no fault in him. Uh, Judas, one of Jesus' companions, a disciple of Christ, but the one who betrayed him, afterwards said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And one of the two thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus said this, This man has done nothing wrong. In fact, the lead soldier who was in charge of carrying out the crucifixion stood at the foot of the cross and he said, Surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the Son of God. And so these all agree together. He was a spotless lamb. Peter, another follower of Jesus, during his entire public ministry said, of him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, of course, we could add to this the two different moments throughout Jesus' earthly ministry when we hear audibly the voice of the Father, God the Father from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So as you look at, at the rules of the Passover, that chosen lamb had to be slain. It was on the 14th day of the month, the lamb would be taken, its blood would be, uh, it would be slain, and its blood would be shed and sprinkled on the doorpost of the home to protect that family from the plague of death. And that commemorates ongoingly, as Israel would do that year, year by year, as a reminder of what God had done that night back in Exodus, when the Lord had passed over the homes where the blood had been applied and spared the firstborn in those families. All of those lambs slain in the ho- those Jewish homes for hundreds of years, every single lamb, all of that blood pointed forward to the Lamb of God, the one who was God become man. Now, the place, this is such an interesting theme, and I don't want to make any, um, any pretensions to have this figured out, but there's some interesting connections here worth our consideration. If you think about where Jesus, uh, where God chose for the Lamb of God 
to come into the world? Well, it's Bethlehem. And we know, well, Bethlehem, that's, uh, that was also the birthplace of David, who was a, what, keeper of the sheep. Uh, so there's some sheep shepherd um, business going on there. But significantly, Bethlehem was known to be the place not far from Jerusalem, actually, where the lambs that were chosen for Passover were specifically raised. They were cultured and, and um, selected. They were the best of the crop, right? They were the best of the lambs that were called for Passover was in Bethlehem. And surely the shepherds outside Bethlehem are caring for sheep that will eventually be Passover lambs. But there's something else curious here that, that I've been aware of for the last number of years, but was brought freshly in mind recently as I'm reading through the scriptures. In Micah chapter 4, right in the context of the prophecy that Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of Christ, we read in chapter 5, verse 2, that Bethlehem Ephrata will be the birthplace of the Savior. But you back up one, uh, one chapter, chapter 4, it says this. If you read in Micah 4, 8, And thou, and I'm reading, this is the Hebrew, Migdal Eder, which means lookout tower of the flock. The hill of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. The former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Just outside Bethlehem is this lookout tower, this lookout tower of the flock. And tradition tells us that this was the place where lambs were inspected carefully to confirm, was this truly a perfect lamb? And they were swaddled in cloths. Uh, There's a very good possibility that as we look at the scripture describing that Jesus, there's, God has everything perfectly in place. He's perfectly um, orchestrated that Caesar gives the decree for people to come and register on this particular day, this particular year, to this particular place. We see all of the details God has aligned very carefully. And yet, we come to the scene where it says, but there was no room for them in the inn. And you almost get this moment of, wow, did God miss something? Had God forgotten one important piece in all of his divine orchestrating of things? All the events that lined up perfectly, had he forgotten to get a room ready for the Messiah? I don't want to make a, make a claim here, but it makes me wonder if God intentionally did that in order that they would find this place just outside the, right outside Bethlehem, a place where animals were, were um, these, these little sheep were prepared as the place to have his son born into the world. So Micah 5.2 foretells for sure that Bethlehem, Ephrata would be the birthplace of the Savior. And so those lambs, just those lambs in Jewish homes, uh, filled the role of a substitute, just as that ram had done many years before on Mount Moriah. 
the firstborn in every home, could then look at that lamb that they had selected and say, that lamb is dying for me. That lamb is dying for me. What a, what a powerful picture of the Lord Jesus. He was selected by the Father. He was scrutinized by man. He was found to be spotless. He was slain on Calvary's cross. There is a substitute for you and me, the sinner. And now by faith we can, like, like Paul and like the other New Testament people, look on him and say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Or like the hymn writer, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. So we, we can trace this theme all through the New Test- Old Testament, and I've just barely scratched on it for you. Uh, but we've, we've just scratched this beautiful theme. But let's look now at some of the New Testament texts that speak to this. I want to bring your attention to John the Baptist's ministry the lamb identified here in John and in the Gospels. If you go to John chapter 1, you'll notice that whereas Matthew and Luke make sure to um, provide us the Christmas narratives of God becoming flesh, John does not give us that explicit a Christmas narrative. Of course, he does say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he does reference the coming in of the Messiah. But one of the very first things that John does as he's recounting the ministry of Christ is to show us the introduction of Christ through the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's baptizing down by the river Jordan, and when he, he's down by the river, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ, now a grown man. He walks down to the water, and in chapter 1, verse 29, we read this. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah, as we've just looked at, they had prophesied many things about Christ. And in chapter 53 of Isaiah's prophecy, he specifically said that he would be led like a lamb to slaughter. That was the cost, that was the price that Jesus Christ was going to pay in order to save the world, to rescue sinners from their sin. It was going to come at great personal cost to the Lord Jesus. And so here we have the lamb identified. John points to him and says, this is the one. Behold, the lamb of God. Why would he say lamb when it's truly and clearly a man walking? It's because all, the, all of these prophecies, all these allusions throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, had been pointing, pointing, pointing forward to this idea that he was to be a lamb, uh, not, not, a tr- not a lamb in the sense of an actual animal, but he was to end what all of those pictures pointed forward to. He was to be the final and true lamb. As you work your way now through the Gospels, through the Epistles, through Hebrew, and even into Revelation, we get this added testimony that is given to Isaiah's prophecy and other Old Testament texts that focus now on the Lamb crucified. The Gospel accounts provide vivid detail on how they they mistreated him, how they pounded a crown of thorns 
into his head. How they hit him with their hands. How they whipped his back with the cat of nine tails. Plucked the beard from his face. And then they led him out to the cross where they nailed his hands and his feet. There he writhed and languished in agony as the lamb of sacrifice on the cross. And Paul writes this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Peter adds his testimony. He writes, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Clearly, as these New Testament writers look on Christ, they see in him the fulfillment of what was longed for, what was pictured in all of those texts through the Old Testament. I want to bring us finally to the Lamb glorified. We sang about it in the final, in the hymn just before, before I came up here. The Lamb glorified. As we look and as we've traced from the beginning of Scripture all the way right through to the very end, this thread of the Lamb weaves its way through. Christ the Lamb. It's a theme of, of sacrifice. It's a theme of salvation through the blood of a spotless lamb. Begins, as we've seen, from Abel. And it weaves its way through. He's the lamb that's needed, the lamb that's prophesied, as we saw in, in the account of Abraham. But, um, sorry, I lost my, my notes here one sec. Um, he's offered in the place of Isaac. And then we've seen him as the sacrificial Passover lamb the spotless lamb that was needed. He's John the, the one that John the Baptist pointed to and said, behold, this is the lamb of God. And it, here now it climaxes in the book of Revelation as Christ displays himself to the apostle John. And the apostle John gives us a glimpse of the lamb now in his glorified state. As you look through Revelation, there are I think it's just over 25 times that this language of the lamb is mentioned, almost more than anywhere else, almost to say this is the culmination, this is the grand finale, and it's repeated over and over and over again. In chapter 5, we see the, the tribes and the nations, and we see the angels all worshiping. What does it say? It says they worshiped the lamb. John writes in chapter 5, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. When you come to chapter 6, we see this, a very different imagery of the Lamb. He's not tender, meek, and mild, but describes the wrath of the Lamb. And that we are to be Wary of the wrath of the Lamb, we read there that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone enslaved and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? As you work your way through the book of Revelation, you come to chapter 19, where it gives us a very, a very different picture yet of the Lamb. It's the wedding, the wedding of the Lamb. There we're introduced to the, to the wife of the Lamb, which is a reference to the church of Jesus Christ, all those who are blood-bought by the Lamb's blood. Uh, it says they have made themselves ready. John says, I heard what seemed to be the roar of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteousness of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. As we look at these final two images, the wrath of the Lamb and the wedding of the Lamb, it, it, it causes us, I hope, to pause and say, on which side of the Lamb are, are we today, this Christmas? It's exciting, it's glorious to have a, this Christmas time in front of us. And yet it all centers around this Lamb, this one that was born in the town where lambs were born for sacrifice. This is a Lamb that has come, is given himself as a sacrifice uh, to redeem sinners and there are those who will enjoy this glorious wedding day as the bride of Christ, as those who have been purchased by his precious blood. But as we've seen, there are, is also the reality that there is the wrath of the Lamb for all those who have rejected his mercy, who have not come into the good of his atoning work, of his sacrifice, the sacrifice that all that was so needed, as we saw in the case of, of Adam and the case of Abel and Cain. A sacrifice was needed. A sacrifice is needed for, to, to cover our sins as well. And that sacrifice has to be the person of Jesus Christ. And so, if we only see Jesus as an infant in the, in the, in the manger at Christmas, then I think we're clearly missing the profound significance of what his coming was all about. The story of the Lamb is about God meeting us right where we are, in our sin, in our misery, in our shame, in our destitution, and then clothing us with grace and love, uh, condescending to um, bleed and die and suffer in our place. But the Lamb, the one that was born in Bethlehem, now, as we read here, stands as the Lamb who was slain, who receives Praise from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All the ransomed of the earth joining together to worship him. And so the true promise of Christmas isn't found in, in that cute little cradle, um, but ultimately in the cross and in the glory of his resurrection and ascension on high. And so I invite and encourage each one of you to come and worship him this Christmas
uh, for his glory and for your blessing. Let's pray. We thank you, gracious God, for your great condescension in the person of Jesus Christ coming to dwell among us, to be the lamb of sacrifice, to die our death, to stand in our place. Thank you for the images that are woven through scripture to point to this one, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray that we would know, each of us, the joy of coming into the joy of union with Christ, being wedded to this Lamb of God, to in the future day be gloriously enraptured with among all the other saints to worship and adore him who our soul loves. I pray for any here today who are yet outside of Christ, that they would flee to Christ and be spared from the wrath of the Lamb, for the, which is the reality for all who reject him. Lord, use these words, what is true and lovely and good from your word, to convict our hearts and to draw us into um, affection for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.